Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My guest today is David Bradbury, one of Australia's most successful documentary filmmakers. His films have been shown on all the major Australian commercial and public broadcast networks as well as overseas. He's won countless international film festival prizes and been the winner of five AFI awards and two Academy Award nominations. In 1972, David Bradbury began his career as a radio journalist with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation after graduating from the Australian National University with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and History. David has had a long interest in nuclear issues. His latest film, A Hard Rain, challenges pro-nuclear propaganda and explores the other side of the debate. He made a film called Blowing in the Wind in 2005 about the US military use of depleted uranium weapons in and since the first Gulf War. David Bradbury, welcome to If You Love This Planet. Thanks, Helen. Now, David, um, you sent me a list of talking points which are very interesting. So I'd like to go way back to your auntie, Thel. How did you get involved in the nuclear issue how old were you, and what propelled you into worrying about it? Well, I guess as a young whippersnapper uh, in my pre-adolescent years, I didn't think that I was going to uh, get involved in in the nuclear issue. But when I was young, uh, my auntie, who was a, a nurse, kept on telling me about this thing called cancer. Mm. And uh, like all kids, fascinated with, with death and uh and uh, people's uh, demise, I asked her what cancer was, and she explained it to me. So I made this uh, bold statement that I would uh, find a cure for cancer and uh, free the world of this dreaded disease that um, was claiming so many lives back in the the mid-late 50s when I was a a youngster. So that kind of uh, hit the the ground uh, 100 miles an hour when my careers advisor at high school said my math and, and uh, science was pretty average or below average, so I thought I'd better make a career move fast at that tender age of uh, 14 or 15, and I struck upon journalism, which is what I pursued. Went to university in the early 70s, the tail end of the Vietnam War. Uh, it was a big issue in Australia of Aboriginal land rights, Indigenous land rights for our people, and uh, apartheid in South Africa. And that radically politicised me as I studied history and um, and politics at uh, the university in Canberra. And uh, when I came out of that, I pursued a career in journalism, working in in uh, radio journalism at our public broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. But because I'd been radicalised by student politics, I felt quite frustrated by mainstream journalism, which was very conservative and didn't really allow me to focus on stories that was happening in my society in Australia then, 
that I wanted to look at uh, issues of uh, feminism, uh, you know, the end of the Vietnam War, whether Australia should have soldiers in Vietnam or not. Yeah, uranium was uh, becoming a big issue because Australia was looking at whether we would, in fact, um, mine uranium back in 1972 when we got the first uranium mines coming to Australia, the three uranium mines that we were allowed to have under our government um, change in policy back then. And I lived like a lot of Americans under the spectra of the, uh, the world could end at the press of a button with uh, uh, the, uh, Brezhnev or uh, Khrushchev uh, pushing the buttons and uh, sending up the world into a, a nuclear nightmare as a result of a standoff between the United States and, and, uh, and the Soviet Union. Right. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to you talking, David Bradbury, will relate exactly to what you're talking about. And I think that a lot of their fears about nuclear holocaust and the, the, the Vietnam War and uh, feminism and the whole thing probably have been uh, subjugated to a little bit of psychic numbing over the years as we've all gotten older because um, we're the, the generation, what, what do we call it, us the boomers, the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as we get older, we tend to try and feel more comfortable and a little more conservative, although I think underneath many of us really relate and resonate to what you're saying. So... So having gone through those big changes psychologically and facing the real issues of the world, David, what did you decide to do with your life after you left university? Well, I got pretty bored pretty quickly with, uh, with downtown uh, City Hall politics in Sydney, Australia. And uh, I'd been on a rugby tour to San Francisco in 1972 with my university and to the Canada and, and Europe. And I was itching to get out of Australia and to see the big wide world. And so fortunately, I won a Rotary Fellowship to go to all places, West Virginia University. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'd just seen the film Deliverance as I set off on my plane trip to the United States. I'd applied to Rotary to go to Columbia University because I knew they had a great journalism course there or one of the other uh, biggest city um, university campuses, but uh, the Rotary Fellows, in their wisdom, decided to send me to, to West Virginia. And uh, so I arrived there. It was quite a good move, as it turned out, because um, uh, I got, as a, a uh, Aussie-speaking uh, wannabe radio journalist, uh, filmmaker, I got to speak to some really interesting Americans and um, Australian exiles, like the political cartoonist Patrick Oliphant, working for the Washington Post and doing his rather scathing but really spot-on cartoons. Julian Bond from uh, Boston, he was a great civil rights activist, came and lectured at uh, West Virginia University and I uh, sat at his feet, as it were, and um, interviewed him. And um, then I went down to Washington to, uh, to check out the, uh, the cauldron of world politics. And Wilbur Mills, uh, some of your older listeners might remember Wilbur Mills, he'd fallen into um, disrepute because of a, uh, a relationship he had with a, a woman of, uh, of considered uh, questionable repute called uh, Fanny um, Mills or something. It's a Fanny, I can't remember. Anyway, I met her by chance on the streets of Washington, interviewed her, and uh, I then came back and um, finished my course at uh, West Virginia University. I ran into an old CBS correspondent there, 
called Frank Kearns, who had a gravelly, uh, smoker-driven voice, and he said to me, having covered the Six-Day War in the Israel and the Middle East and uh, the Biafran uh, uh, war with people starving there, he said to me, you know, David, war is hell. You really don't want to go there. And, of course, that was like... Um, you know, bait to me saying to a, a young 25-year-old that you don't want to see war. I thought, well, if a guy that I had a great respect for and seemed to be pretty worldly wise said uh, war was hell, I wanted to go and check it out. So um, that's what I did because I'd rejected my Baptist upbringing by that stage. I'd had a quite a tumultuous uh, uh, conflict in my adolescent years about did I believe in Christ as a born-again saviour of, uh, of mankind and my politics at university, which were then decidedly leftist, clashed with those notions, is there a God or is there not a God? And I determined, I guess, at that time, Helen, that um, if I couldn't save the world from cancer, if I couldn't uh, have a reserved seat at the pearly gates because I was agnostic by this point in my life, I would then do my best to try and protect the wonderful planet that we've got that uh, was my obligation as a good Christian steward. A lot of the Baptist uh, uh, stories had rubbed off on me. And so daring to be a Daniel, daring to stand alone, and David and Goliath with his slingshot taking on the, the multinational giants, I stepped into the breach to play out that role as a variation of the kid that wanted to save the world from cancer. And that led me into anti-nuclear politics and uh, filmmaking as an activist filmmaker. <laughs> Well, you're not a very big fellow, too. You're not very tall, and so you Watch kind there, of Helen, you touch, kind of fit the Davidian territory there. <laughs> you, the you kind of fit the David and Goliath picture, David, and you are David, so that that works. So, you when you were challenged by Kearns and said you don't want to go, war's a terrible business. Did you actually go and and observe a war and report on it, or not? Well, I, I did, but through the back doors, it were I um. I, I went to um, and Jaya, your listeners would know, West Papua, which is an island north of Australia. It's a huge island with a huge amount of resources there, taken over like East Timor by the Indonesian military and continually raped for its vast mineral and forest wealth. And I snuck into into West Papua or Irian Jaya, where Rockefeller's son died, actually, or disappeared uh, in the 60s and never be found again. Mm. I uh, snuck into West Irian and uh, did a story for a, um, a magazine, the equivalent of Time or Newsweek in Australia, called The Bulletin. And uh, I actually got malaria there and uh, had to be carried out by the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels. And, uh, and uh, that was my first brush at 26 years of age with death and my own mortality, having thought up to that point that I was bulletproof. So after that, I decided I needed to get a few clues from older mentor figures who had been in war zones so that I wouldn't go the way of all flesh and die before I, I turned 30. So I then turned to a, uh, an amazing uh, Australian called Neil Davis who had filmed the Vietnam War for 11 years, and I started making a documentary about him, which ended up being my first film, uh, Frontline, which quite uh, ironically or interestingly, having never gone formally to film school and, and trained as a filmmaker, it got nominated for an Academy Award. And my my dear Christian father, he was a Plymouth Brethren, very conservative, and I came from a family where no one had ever been to university before. They, um, they were a bit uh, 
uh, upset or disappointed with me that I'd left the Australian Broadcasting Commission where I had a, a paid, secure job and presumably a ticket to being an on-camera correspondent if I played my cards right over the next 10 or 20 years and live happily ever after. So uh, my dad, nevertheless, gave me uh, $15,000, his whole life savings, to pay for the, the rights to use Neil's footage that I got from the English-based Viz News news agency and NBC in America, where F Neil had filmed the fall of Saigon, and he'd got the unique footage of the, uh, of the communist tanks from Viet North Vietnam crashing through the gates of the presidential palace in 1975 in Saigon. And uh, Neil was my sort of guy. He was, uh, he was 42 when I interviewed him at age 28. And uh, tragically, he'd lose his life 10 years later in a little botched queue in Bangkok streets. But he taught me so much, Helen, so much of how to survive in a war zone and what to do when the bullets start whizzing over your head and, and how to pay attention to your instincts that we'd lost in the West with our very uh, cosmetic lifestyle. He talked to me how the American GIs, he didn't like going with them because it was almost a, a death sentence in the jungles and quagmire of Vietnam. The uh, Viet Cong could smell their, their aftershave and their toothpaste and their backpacks and they were so loud and so um, sort of, um, yeah, they relied on technology so much. Whereas uh, he came from Tasmania uh, the Apple Island of Australia he was a country kid himself and he related more to the South Vietnamese Asian soldiers who he chose to go with. And uh, he um, he covered that war, as I say, for 11 years. And uh, that film, Frontline, was my introduction to filmmaking and uh, what you could do with the power of a film and, uh, and getting a message out, as it were. And uh, so the next film I turned around to make was a film about another Correspondent, I was on hindsight. I was mentoring myself to older men who could take me down the pathway of what it meant to cover wars and dangerous situations and give me enough tips that when my chance came, as it were, and it came in that second film when I was making a film about the controversial left-wing journalist Wilfred Burchett in uh, who'd covered the Korean and Vietnam wars from the communist side, was very good friends with Ho Chi Minh and General Jiap, the brilliant military strategist general that had uh, defeated the French and then turned around to defeat the Americans in the Second American-Vietnam War. Uh, Wilford was good friends with those since the early 50s and uh, when he went to Vietnam first. And my connection to Wilford began with Wilford uh, taking me to Hiroshima. Mm. OK, been... well, let's interrupt first. I'm interviewing David Bradbury, who is a documentary filmmaker, who has a huge amount to say. So, David, we have to pause every now and then to, to identify you. But I want you now, uh, Wilfred Burchett was a very famous, uh, often underestimated Australian. So I want you now to uh, pay obeisance to Wilfred and tell the audience who he was, how the Americans treated him, and what he did uh, in, in Hiroshima? Well, Wilford's story as a journalist began in the, uh, the tail end of uh, World War, uh, or the beginning of World War II. He was in Nazi Germany in the lead-up to Hitler formally taking power and, and beginning World War II when he got out. But he helped uh, smuggle Jews out of uh, Nazi Germany in those early pre-war years. And then in the Second World War itself, 
He uh, found himself a correspondent attached to the Americans in the South Pacific campaign, where he was um, he was uh, injured uh, by the Japanese um, fighter um, drafting plane, and uh, he used that to good advantage a little later on. And I'll tell you that um, he was an amazing journalist and had a great sense of. Uh, what the real story was, as opposed to going to, like, bees to the honeypot where all the other journalists flocked to because they played tag team with each other. So when General MacArthur landed on the Japanese mainland in 1945 after the uh, world's first two bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Wilfred determined, having heard on the radio that this strange new bomb had ended into our pages of history, he determined that the real story was not... MacArthur accepting the surrender from the humiliated Japanese emperor in front of 239 other foreign correspondents that uh, MacArthur had corralled and, and took on board with him on the U.S. battleship Missouri to accept the, uh, the defeat and the formal signature from the Japanese emperor. Wilfred feigned sickness and uh, stomach pains and snuck away to catch a train from uh, Tokyo Station. And the rest of the country, Helen, you have to understand, was placed out of bounds at this time. It was too dangerous for any uh, American-looking uh, foreigners to, to take off by themselves. Why was it placed out of bounds? Why? Because, A, there were two reasons. I think MacArthur wanted, as uh, all good American generals have wanted to embed journalists thereafter, and they failed that miserably with the Japanese war. But... What do you mean embed? Just explain that. Well, they took the 239 other correspondents under military convoy uh, to the U.S. battleship Missouri to watch and photograph report on the Japanese emperor uh, signing the surrender ceremony as uh, General MacArthur strutted his stuff and uh, and showed what a great um, you know, victory it had been for the um, Americans uh, at the end of the Second World War. But how, and so he embedded them within the American military, embedded yeah. the journalists, so they yeah. weren't free to do what journalists weren't normally able do. To go anywhere else at all, but Wilfred pretending he was sick, told only one other journalist uh, friend that he could trust that he was in what his plan was to do. So he stayed back in the military barracks in Tokyo mm -hmm. and um, had a couple of cans of, uh, of uh, rations from the American army. He was dressed, get this, Helen, he was dressed in the American military fatigues, which was a correspondent, foreign correspondent's um, uniform of the day. Yeah. Had a forty-five uh, in his in his uh, haversack. A forty-five gun. A gun to shoot himself because he knew that the Japanese had been quite brutal to Australian and American POWs and he didn't want to be uh, uh, be tortured and die a quick, uh, a slow, agonising death. Prisoner of war. Yeah, he wanted yeah. to shoot himself and not have a John Wayne-type shootout for the Japanese. He just wanted to kill himself if he was actually going to... Um, be taken and tortured, and that was at that stage they were still torturing and hanging American POWs in the uh, the uh, the back blocks of Japan, where they had the American soldiers, the prisoners of war, imprisoned. So Wilfred went to uh, to Tokyo Station, and which was quite bombed and uh, and ruined from the American bombing campaign up to that point. Uh, but he found out that there was in fact a train leaving to go to in the direction of Hiroshima. And he didn't dare mention the word Hiroshima at all because he knew that would probably be a, a death sentence to mention the word Hiroshima because the train that he finally caught was full of Japanese officers who were absolutely humiliated and looking at Birch with such uh, anger and disdain. They wanted to uh, take their 
ceremonial swords and knives out of their stave, after their scabbards and, uh, and, and execute him on the spot. But he managed, because of his experience and because of his, his humility and his Australianness, yeah. managed to be able to talk and hustle his way with the ordinary foot soldiers who he shared the outside at the end of the train. There's always that little bit that you can stand out to have a smoke or whatever. Mm-hmm. On the back of that, because the train was crowded with all these decommissioned officers and soldiers going back to their families now the war was formally over. And Wilford was on the back of the train and he pulled up his, his uh, military fatigue uh, trouser leg and showed where he'd been uh, strafed by the, the Japanese zeros and the leg and they all laughed about it and he shared a bit of his uh, rations with the Japanese ordinary soldiers and they gave him a little bit of rice and, and the banter went back and forth. And then he oh. moved into the main part of the train. Yeah. For the, after the train... And uh, lit, you know, got a bit uh, more vacant uh, as it got, you know, 100 kilometres and miles or so from Tokyo Station. And then, of course, and I took this bullet train with him, Helen, I have to say that those tunnels, even on a, a 200 kilometre an hour bullet train, gave for minutes at times. So he was on an old puffing steam train going to those dark tunnels with the Japanese Imperial officers who knew exactly what was happening that hour, that day, on board the US battleship Missouri with their... Their people and their uh, themselves, the Imperial Army, being humiliated by General MacArthur and his um, victorious American forces. So when Wilford got inside the train carriage, he saw a European. It turned out it was an American missionary. Mm-hmm. So he said to the American, he smiled at the American missionary, and the American missionary was very gruff with him. He said, "Don't smile. These officers are talking about killing you." They know what you where you come from, and they they know what's happening at this very moment. Don't smile, whatever you do. So Wilford took immediately the smile off his face and and maintained a poker face until he got at two a.m. in the morning. He asked in Japanese at each time the train came to a stop, "What is the name of this station?" Not daring to say, "Is this a Hiroshima station?" Yeah. And then eventually at two a.m. the word came back, "Hiroshima." So he tucked his haversack out the window jumped out the window, and oh. they were standing in the shattered remains like a European train station, he told me on camera. You have all the glass, one of those oval-shaped, high-ceiling um, train station. It was just yeah. twisted metal, no glass in any of the panels at all. It was just totally shattered. And he was immediately arrested by the, the Japanese police of Hiroshima. Now, what we're talking about with <clears throat> David Bradbury who is a, a documentary filmmaker, the most fascinating history that I think most Americans have never heard about an Australian journalist called Wilfred Burchett, an extraordinarily brave but brilliant journalist, the first journalist ever to get to Hiroshima after the bomb. Uh, we'll find out how many days after the bomb. He was the first ever to report about the strange illnesses that were occurring. So, David, take us from there. He, he landed in the train station. It was totally destroyed in Hiroshima. So he was immediately, was arrested. immediately arrested, yes. And taken to the lock-up to jail. Yeah. And the next morning, a Japanese journalist from the uh, news agency in Hiroshima came by at the request of the police to ask him what he was doing. Yeah. And uh, Wilford, again with his humility and uh, the international code of journalists uh, looking out for each other, explained that he wanted to tell the world what that bomb was all about. And how many days after the bomb was dropped did he arrive? 
Two to three weeks. Two to three weeks. Okay. Go on. And, and so the um, the Japanese journalists took Wilfred for a tour of the city. And it was all devastated everywhere. There is hardly a, a building standing, as you've seen, Helen, yourself, in the archival footage. Yep. They eventually came to a hospital. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. What's happening? Oh, I'm getting a little bit upset. But the, um, the, the, the doctor in charge of the hospital told him that um, he was a Christian. He'd been trained in the United States at a university there with his medical degree. And he said, I, look, I know war is a terrible thing, but what the Americans have done to a civilian population here in Hiroshima is just beyond belief. He said, look, you must tell the Americans to send supplies, to send doctors, to send people that can help us in this situation because we don't know how to deal with it. We give them vitamin C injections and the rot just, just um, the flesh just rots away where we put the injections into the babies and the children and the adults. Please, you know, um, you must do something. But after Wilfred had been around and seen the women with babies at their breasts whose hair was falling out onto the pillows, after he'd seen that, the doctor said, I'm sorry, you must leave. Dressed in American, American military uniform and representing the West, these people just can't handle your presence anymore. So Wilford left and he went outside. He looked around and he found a shattered concrete pylon that was just lying on the ground. And he sat on it and he brought out his little typewriter, manual typewriter. And he typed and his first words where I write this as a warning to the world. Oh, God. Oh. And then um, he continued his report in that, uh, that article, and um, uh, lo and behold, uh, later that day, an American Army PR colonel turned up, and he'd flown in in a DC-3, I think, from directly from Washington, and he had all the gaggle of American correspondents on board that plane, and they'd been promised that they would be the first Western correspondents into Hiroshima. But this humble Australian, with all the get-up-and-go that came from being the child of the Depression, he'd carried his swag around the back box of, um, of Australia and um, boiled his belly and knocked on the door and asked, for, um, excuse me, missus, could you give me some bread and dripping and food like that? It had the banks... And this is very relevant to today with the banks of what they've done in the United States and in Australia and so on. Had the banks foreclose on the family home and take away his family home in depression in, in Australia. And that had forever influenced Wilfred about what capitalism is like and, um, and so on. He um, was sitting there and, uh, and the American colonel came up and was a bit sort of missed to see Wilford there, and he said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, my name's Wilford Burchett, I'm foreign correspondent. Uh, he said, well, you've got no right to be here, and, uh, and of course, yeah, the other journalist, the American colonel knew, would be potentially um, scooped by Wilford's report, plus Wilford had actually seen what uh, the embedded journalists were not going to be seen. They would not be taken to that hospital to see the, mm. the uh, victims of uh, radiation poisoning, because America at that time, the president had presented that um, it was, in fact, um, you know, it was only a military target that hit, and there was um, military personnel 
that uh, had been uh, killed in it and they didn't know about radiation at that time. They didn't know what um, it did to, to people, both uh, soldiers and civilians alike. So when he, um, when he uh, asked uh, Wilfred um, to explain himself, Wilfred uh, being quick on the initiative, knowing that he had a, a long trip back to the... Um, back to the, uh, Tokyo to see whether he'd get his, uh, his story out, said, could he get a lift back on the plane? And the Japanese, the American PR colonel said, I'm sorry, but um, there's no room on the plane for you. Um, you know, we're full. And Wilfred said, look, I don't mind standing. It's only a short trip back to Tokyo, and um, you must have used up fuel on the trip over here, so it'll be light on. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, the American colonel said, no, you can't go. So uh, he flew off, and Wilfred was very worried then that all this effort and risk to his life that he'd taken uh, to get there, he was going to be scooped by the other American correspondents getting their copy out there flying out. Anyway, the Japanese correspondent helped Wilfred to Morse code tap it out. And uh, unfortunately, the line... Helped Wilfred to what? Say that. He helped the Japanese correspondent helped... Helped Wilfred to tap it out with Morse code. They used oh, tap it out with line. Morse code, yes. Yeah. They used a telegraph line, which they didn't know was in fact intact from uh, Hiroshima back to Tokyo. It hadn't been bombed at all. Yeah. Wilfred didn't know that. He got on board the, uh, the train and, and made his way back back to Tokyo to find out that the uh, that the uh, editor at the uh, at the Daily Express in uh, in London had in fact got that story and uh, had in fact used his opening line I write this as a warning oh. to the world as as the banner line on the newspaper which went out all around the world and Wilfred had his scoop and uh, and the effort was worth it oh my god this is the most amazing story I've Almost ever heard, David. I oh, know, it's amazing. The first journalist who had the courage, the tenacity and the know-how to get into Hiroshima three weeks afterwards and got into the hospital and saw for the first time acute radiation sickness and people dying with their hair falling out yeah. and their flesh rotting. Never before, let me talk now as a physician, had the medical profession ever seen anything like this? This was a totally new illness. And, and the American military and, uh, and presidency denied the existence of radiation sickness, as they call it then. They denied that uh, the fish in the, in the rivers had died, denying the people any, any food sources and so on, and denied that uh, all the damage had been done to the civilian population. They disputed that, and Wilfred was hounded for the next 12 months or more uh, as a result of doing that story. Could he write anything else about it during that 12 months? Yeah, he, he wrote uh, other stories about it, but which was denied in the media. Denied in the media, and I know that for five years, I think, the Americans uh, covered up what was actually happening in Hiroshima, people dying with their flesh rotting, hair falling out, vomiting, bleeding to death and developing bleeding under the skin and dying of leukemia and the like. Wasn't wasn't the news of that totally blocked out for five years after they dropped the bomb? Uh, I don't know, Helen, the yeah. specifics of that at all, I'm sorry. I know yeah. that it went against uh, Birchett for when he covered the Korean War and the American military denied that they were using germ warfare, denied that they dropped capsules with anthrax uh, insects in them to... Uh, to uh, uh, hurt and uh, spread disease amongst the uh, 
uh, the North Korean people. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, Wilfred was uh, hounded for that as well. Uh, and then, of course, during the Vietnam War, when he went with the, uh, the uh, Ho Minh forces, it was denied the effects initially of Agent Orange and, uh, and that they were, what they were doing there. So Wilfred has been along, uh, been seen as an enemy of the, uh, of the, of the uh, American military. But that was that bomb. That was a seminal moment in Wilfred's uh, reporting career and his his uh, career, as he calls himself, a citizen of the world. Yeah. He saw himself as a citizen of the world first and a journalist second, and his obligations to the the world were more important than to uh, any particular oh, ideology. Of course. So what happened to Wilfred Burchett, um, David Bradbury? Well, it's quite a sad story, uh, Helen. I see him as being one of the most famous and uh, to be lauded Australians ever uh, for what he did in trying to report the truth both in uh, Hiroshima story but also with the uh, the Vietnam War and, and so on, what it followed afterwards. But uh, in Australia, he's been regarded uh, as being a traitor to this country. The conservative forces and... Uh, uh, you know, the Murdoch uh, Press and uh, another family dynasty of newspaper barons called the Packers uh, led a conservative campaign to see Burchett uh, treated as a as a traitor to the point where there were many Australians who would want to see Burchett hung when we had capital punishment in this country and uh, and Burchett could not come back to this country to to answer the uh, charges or to clear his name. Because he had, when he lost his passport in the mid 1950s in um, in Vietnam, reporting on the battle for Dien Bien Phu, the American conservative government refused to uh, to renew his American his Australian passport, even though he was third generation born Australian. When his 90 year old father was dying, they would not renew his passport to come back to see his dead, to say his last farewell to his father, for instance, and. Uh, it wasn't until 1972 when uh, Gough Whitlam got um, elected as the uh, Labor uh, Prime Minister of Australia that Wilfred was granted another a new passport, an Australian passport, and he could come back to Australia to, uh, to um, answer and clear his name. But to this day, his name is still a dirty word in many conservative sections of the Australian and media. And when did he die? He died in 1985, I think, in yeah. Bulgaria, in uh, in the in Europe. He lived in Paris for a long time. That's where I interviewed him, and I went back to to Vietnam and Cambodia. We were ambushed together in uh, Cambodia. Nearly died. It was my first time I came under fire. Uh, was with Wilfred, and our van was peppered with uh, machine gun fire, and three rockets were fired at us. We had a week's supply of petrol on board the the Toyota van, and it would have gone up in flames. And uh, had it um, been hit, but fortunately, six bullets um, that went through the van and hit the driver in, in the cheek and in the back. Uh, he survived that and he kept on driving. He was a veteran of the Dien Bien Phu campaign against the French, a tough uh, Vietnamese guy, and uh, he saved our lives, really. Wow. Otherwise, um, I wouldn't be here talking to you and I would have died with Wilfred Burton in the back box of Cambodia. Well, I'm interviewing David Bradbury, who's an Australian documentary filmmaker, and we've just heard the most extraordinary historical explanation and description of one of the most important journalists who actually has ever lived, an Australian called Wilfred Burchard, who was the first person to report on what happened in Hiroshima and the medical implications. He 
he will go down in history. That's if we all survive. I remember, though, years ago, David, when I first started my work against the French tests in the early 70s, I think, I received a letter from Wilfred Burchett out of the blue, I think congratulating me. I can't remember exactly what, but um, I felt very um, honoured to receive that letter. So you made a film called Public Enemy Number One about Burchett. Yep. Is that available um, on the internet, David Bradbury? Yep, there's an outfit uh, being a little plug here for Filmmakers Library, two good women, Sue and Linda at Filmmakers Library in New York City. They distribute it for me and uh, they can get that along. Public Enemy Number One. And do you have in that film a description by Burchett of that visit to Hiroshima and the article he wrote? Yes, it's there. It's That's all there. very important. I would urge every single one of my listeners to go uh, and get that film, Public Enemy Number One, and see it and get it out on YouTube. It's quite ironic, too, thinking about it, Helen, now, because I interviewed Birch and he told me that story uh, at um, uh, an apartment in Brooklyn and behind him were the Twin Towers. Oh, no. The river, yeah. Really? Right. Yeah. Good God. That was before they came down, right? Mm. Now, now, David, um, let's move on. That's that's Birchett. That was a very, very important sure. story. Yeah. Um, now, the second film you made was um, a documentary called Jabaluka about yeah. for the fight for the Mirar people in the Central Australian Desert. Now, the Mirar people are in a an Aboriginal tribe in the Central Australian Desert. So can you describe uh, what their fight was about and what your film was about, David Bradbury? Yes, well, I got a call in 1996 from uh, an Aboriginal woman activist uh, friend of mine who I'd met uh, in the 70s, and she said, Bradbury, can you get your ass up here and uh, make a film about uh, <laughs> uh, what, our, what we're struggling to try and stop happening? And her name was Jackie Katona. I said, sure, you know. So I took my then uh, six-year-old son, Dylan, who's listening to this interview as I, as I record it with you, Helen. I took him up to Kakadu. Now, Kakadu, as you rightly said, is this wonderful World Heritage-listed park right in the middle of, uh, of Australia in the Northern Territory. And uh, bizarrely, as only could happen in a, in a hickwater uh, country like Australia, where we despise the uh, the beauty of nature and, and what uh, God's own treasure trove has given us, uh, you've got this World Heritage listed park, but right in the middle of it, you've got a, a huge amount of uranium. And the local people there, the Mirab people, did not want their uranium to be mined because they have in their culture, going back 60,000 years, they have the ancient wisdom of the old people, which has told them from generation to generation that it's Sickness country, to stay wide away, give it a wide berth, not to touch it at all. Sickness country, because if they live there, they get sick and die. They notice the kangaroos die when they sort of uh, go in and live around that country as well. Yeah, the kangaroos die, right. Mm. So I went up there and I I started shooting their struggle, uh, which included taking a huge banner about 20 feet uh, high and about 30 feet long which was an Aboriginal hand, the palm of a hand, and the radiation symbol behind it saying stop. And we took that up about uh, 200 metres up these huge sandstone cliffs 
with the uh, Aboriginal people uh, carrying it like uh, they were in a, on, a, on a war trek, uh, carrying supplies up this, this banner way. It was heavy as. It took a semi-trailer, a big truck to bring it down from Darwin Gosh. to deliver it. And they carried this huge banner up to the top of these sandstone cliffs. And I then conned, I talked the uh, mining company helicopter into taking me up to get the aerials of this. And they suddenly, at the given time, they lit up all their flares and, uh, and so on the Aboriginal people, the activists up there, they let them off. And um, the campaign was led formally by a very humble, a very um, traditional Aboriginal woman called Yvonne Margarula, who'd been entrusted by her father, who'd been hounded and hounded by the federal government and by the mining company, the International Mining Company, to sign over his country to allow uranium mining to take place. And he didn't want that to happen. But even when he was on his dying hospital bed, they came after him to get the signature. How dare they? How dare they? What, what mining company was it? Uh, I don't know if you can... It was a company called... Um, it was a Ranger Uranium Mine, and um, a, um, a, uh, a minister called Ian Viner was a minister who hounded dear old Toby Margarula for the signature. And uh, the, the footage is in... I got the archival footage of it, the way he was hounded and told he had no choice but to sign. And did he sign? He signed it, yeah. Oh, dear... Yeah, but then they were after his daughter to sign out. There was another deposit in a separate part of Kakadu uh, World Heritage Park where Yvonne was a custodian of that land and Dad had died, but she was had the responsibility to be able to speak for country and they wanted her signature on that and she wouldn't sign that over either. So it was a repeat of history and, uh, and we made that film, which uh, fortunately the, uh, we took it around Australia. We couldn't... Initially, get onto public television. We finally got it onto television. But after it had inspired uh, university students and and older people, retired people, to take their their camper vans uh, up to Kakadu National Park and to blockade the uh, mining trucks and the the uh, digging machines from coming to mine any more uranium out of that uh, out of that deposit. And uh, actually, it was backfilled start to the mine was backfilled by the front end loaders and Jabaluka has not happened so far. Jabaluka, but they mined Ranger. They did. Now, okay, so this film is called Jabaluka, J-A-B-I-L-U-K-A. How can people download that film, David Bradbury, to watch that very important film? Well, they can go to my website, which is www.frontlinefilms.com.au and at the moment, we're a little bit behind the the, uh, the fast technology of the internet in Australia. It's coming in the next couple of months, it seems. But um, you can't download the whole movie off the net yet, but you can get a DVD copy of it. But uh, we'll try and catch up with technology, right. Helen, to be able to put that up as a video on demand. How can people get the DVD then? They can order it, can they? can they? order it with, uh, with, through PayPal and uh, pay with a credit card and we'll okay. happily send it to you in the United States. Okay, everybody needs to watch this film, Jabaluka, because you'll see the extraordinary beauty and ancient look of the Australian, what we call bush, and outback and the place where they're mining uranium um, at, at Ranger, there's a striated waterfall that comes down the side of that sandstone cliff, and it's called the Rainbow Snake. And the Aboriginal myths and legends, their song line says, if the Rainbow Snake is, is 
disturbed, it will devour the world. And that's where the uranium is. And Helen, if I can just um, segue from that uh, good explanation of yours, which is part of the Aboriginal uh, mythology and Dreamtime legends of, uh, as you say, the rainbow serpent being destroyed, let's cut to uh, Roxby about Roxby Downs, which is about a thousand kilometres, eight hundred miles south of. Uh, of, uh, of, of a ranger uh, mine where the Mirar people were fighting to stop uranium being mined on their country. Who are the Mirar people? The Mirar people are the people at uh, Kakadu. Let's Aboriginal people. People, yes. Yes. Let's cut to the, another Aboriginal tribe called the Kukada people. Kukada. Kukada. K-O-O-K-A-T-H-A. The Kukada people have lived in for time immemorial in the ancient Australian continent as well. They don't want uranium mining on their country, but today the world's largest mining company, BHP Billiton, wants determinedly to open up the, uh, the, their land and to mine the uh, uranium. There's the world's largest deposit of uranium uh, is at, uh, at Olympic Dam on the Kukata people's country. And... Um, Quite ironically, and you get a little bit. I almost get the hair standing on my the, my back when I to tell you the story because, in the same way that the Mirar people at uh, Ranger Kakadu uranium mine have got a Dreamtime story of if you destroy the Rainbow Serpent, then civilization as we know it will come to a, a grinding halt. Get this, Helen. Uh, Three hundred and fifty meters below the red soils of uh, of Olympic Dam. There is a, a granite cone, a very thick granite cone of solid rock. Granite cone. Yeah, like granite. You know the rock granite. Yes, and cone, yes. C-O-N-E. Yes. Yeah, and um, below that is the is the uranium, and at the moment it's protected from uh, its radiation seeping out into the um, into the world and to the environment by that granite cone. Yeah. Now the um, the Kukata people have a, a legend in their story, their Dreamtime story, of Gulga, who is a sleeping lizard. Not a, not a serpent, but a lizard. Mm. And in their, their, their Dreamtime story, and it, bear in mind that Australia is full of uh, different Aboriginal tribes, but if you break the back of Gulga, the sleeping lizard, then also in their story, and I know you don't know this story, Helen, because we never talked about it, mm. but um, if you break the back of Gulga... Then in their story, also civilization as we know it will come to a halt. Oh my so God! BHP Bulletin had planned, and obviously Aboriginal people didn't have um, geo tech um, or ways of, of, of charting what was underneath 350 meters and and thousands and tens of thousands of tons of red topsoil of the desert floor of Australia before you get to this granite cone. But they that's Gorgas back in their in their dream. Stories. And if you break that back to get the uranium, then you're going to end civilization in their terms. Where we could say, oh, this is old wives' tales, this is poppycock, or what would they know? They're sort of, you know, they don't know much. Look at their, look at them, their culture in comparison to our sophisticated Western technology and what we can do in the fraction of a second with, uh, with um, radio beams around the planet, etc. But um, I think in an intuitive sort of way... And um, I'm a failed Christian, to remind you, but I think in, a, in an intuitive, spiritual sort of way, if I can use that word, 
the uh, ancient wisdom of the Aboriginal people and saying well, you should leave uranium in the ground. It's the one metal on the planet that human beings should not mess with because we don't know how to use it or how to control it. I think there's a really good sort of, uh, I can use it, biblical truth to that. And um, I think that's um, what I've learned. If I've learned anything in the last 30 or, or more years of making films and learning about the um, the uh, issue of uranium and going to Hiroshima with Wilfred to see what that first world bomb had done, making films about depleted uranium and what happens when they turn nuclear power waste into bullets and bombs and anti-tank uh, uh, missiles and so on that they first experimented in the first Gulf War, which has come back to bite all the American GIs with deformed babies and deformed babies in Basra and, and Iraq and now in Serbia where the American uh, NATO forces used depleted uranium, dropping that on the on the um, the, the uh, forces in, in, in the Balkans and the 90s and now in Afghanistan as well. I think uh, that ancient wisdom of the Aboriginal people and uh, the, the Indians of the United States is showing us that uh, we've got a lot to learn yet in our so-called sophisticated white world culture. Yeah, but David, will we learn it? I mean, I sometimes feel like actually tearing my hair out, thinking... It's also obvious what we have to do, and this BHP Billiton Company, this huge mining company, uh, my grandmother had shares in BHP, which years and years ago was an Australian company, and then Billiton bought it out, so now it's a British company. So we have the British here, and we don't like the British in Australia. Anyway, we think they're arrogant. We call them POMs. Um, they they're here now digging up our uranium, and... The, the wisdom that, that that you just spoke about David of the of the Cookada people and and the and the big lizard and having its back broken and that's the the granite cone that will be broken to get to the uranium is so profound how the hell do we get these white Caucasian people males to, mostly males yeah ma you you're right to understand what the hell they're dealing with. Mm. The forces, you know, inside the centre of the sun, how the hell do we get them to understand that they're about to actually blow up the world by doing this? I mean, that, that's that's really the truth when you extrapolate, yeah, right, David? it is, and it's very uh, depressing in Australia to um, not have a, a recognition on the part of most Australians about what's going on, what's being done in our name, uh, and being exported, and what's going to uh, come back to bite us in the in the face, as it were, once BHP Billiton start dumping 70 million tonnes of, uh, of radioactive tailings at the mine site, uncovered, not even into tailings dams, because it requires too huge a volume of water to be able to smother it, to stop the radon gas from uh, escaping, to stop the fine dust particles when they crush the rock up to get the uranium and the other valuable minerals out, what's going to stop the radioactive polonium, radioactive thorium, radium, bismuth, lead, and, and uh, coming over our major cities, which are in the firing line of the prevailing winds from Roxby Downs? Well, you know, we did have a dust storm in Sydney about two years ago. People woke up in Sydney and the air was bright red yep. and they couldn't see through it. And that dust came from Central Australia and from Roxby Downs, 
where there are the uranium tailings that have been ground, been ground up by man into tiny, tiny little particles. Mm. And people in Sydney were breathing that stuff and breathing in polonium. Now, let's talk about polonium. It was polonium that killed that Russian man called Letvinenko. Um, someone dropped some polonium in his tea at Claridge's in London and he died of acute radiation illness, which yep. brings us back to how we first started this program with... Birchett looking for the first time at patients dying of acute radiation illness after the Hiroshima bomb was dropped. Mm. Now, polonium is one of the most deadly elements and it's in the uranium tailings. And people in Sydney and Melbourne and uh, all people east of Broxby Downs will be at risk for developing cancer from thorium, polonium, radon, radium and all of these elements that are daughters yeah. of uranium. And um, the people of New Zealand as well, because those prevailing winds from the deserts of Australia blow eastward towards our most populated cities right. and over to New Zealand. So Now, David, you've made a film about this. Can you? We've got an, only about five minutes left. Can you describe to the audience the name of the film and what, what, it, what it documents? Uh, it was a, a film called When the Dust Settles, which is using that notion that when the dust settles from uh, the red uh, central desert tailings and also from the uranium that's exploded in those bombs in, in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and so on and blows around the world, when the radiation that comes from Fukushima makes its way by Hawaii to the west coast of the United States and uh, and so on, uh, by both the ocean and in the air, when the dust settles, we're all going to pay the price of, uh, of taking the uranium out of the ground and playing God. And uh, that basically um, is encapsulated in a comedy drama. I think that people are a little bit sort of worn thin with uh, heavy-handed documentary making, so trying to get the message, as I've not been able to do, out widely enough in the past through straight documentary, Helen, I, we tackled the subject with a kind of bittersweet pill using comedy and drama uh, to do that in When the Dust Settles. And we took a fairly typical nuclear, if I can use, forgive the pun, a nuclear family, uh, working-class family, who lived in a city and were, the father is an electrician and he wants to... Um, take the big money that's being offered by the mining companies to go and work at Roxby at the Olympic Dam new uranium mine and take his family to the desert to live there. But his smart son, 17-year-old son, who's a bit of a science nerd, uh, doesn't like the idea of leaving his garage band and his um, mates and, uh, and his girlfriend in the uh, East Coast cities of Australia to move to this uh, pretty desolate spot called Roxby Downs and so he gets on the net and starts Googling and finding out from experts, including yourself, that he finds on the internet about the dangers that come from working near a uranium mine and being exposed to low levels of radiation. And as a result of that, the, uh, the, uh, the son, Dylan, who's played by my son, Dylan, who's never acted in a film before, and I was quietly proud of what he did in this film... Um, he, he turns the family around where they don't take the uh, temptation of the, of the big money, so-called, and the family stays put and uh, hopefully lives happily ever after. Now, this film is being sponsored by the Electrical Trades Union of 
Australia and the Electrical Trades Union have put a ban on their workers for mining, working in the uranium mines. And without electricians, they can't actually establish uranium mines, except if there are scab workers. Exactly. And they are, David and the ETU Electrical Trades Union is sending this film, what's it called? Called When the Dust When Set- the Dust Settles to uh, all the Australian, ha- the households at Roxby Down so the mothers and the grandmothers and the parents can watch the film silently where the BHP Billiton, the big corporation, can't interfere and stop them watching exactly. so they can learn the dangers of uranium mining. Now, we've come to the end of our time, David Bradbury. It's been an absolutely fascinating, mind-boggling, actually, <laughs> interview i i had no idea about the profundity of your experience with wilfred birchett and i thank you very much for appearing on the program and we will interview you um um in the in the months ahead about the progress you're making with your documentary films thanks helen thanks for the opportunity to speak to the american people they've got a good heart i think but they just don't get much information about what's happening in the outside world and uh this is a good opportunity to, for some of them to put pressure on our Australian government to really be sorry in the way we've treated Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal Australians in the past. And I think it would be great if the American people started writing to Prime Minister Julia Gillard and asking her to intervene and to see justice done to really respect the voice of Aboriginal Australia in stopping this huge uranium mine going ahead at Olympic Dam in South Australia. That's a very, very good note to end on. So thank you very much, David Bradbury. Thank you, Helen. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Australian documentary filmmaker David Bradbury. And if you want to get his films again, www.frontlinefilms.com.au. Now you can podcast If You Love This Planet. Uh, you can also contribute if you like if you go to ifyouloveThisPlanet.org and we would be very grateful if you would. Um, we will have another fascinating program for you uh, next week. Today was a really historical program such that very few people in the world actually know that story about Wilfred Burchett. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.